Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This week's podcast is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, they send you new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. They source the freshest ingredients measured to exact quantities, so there's no food waste, and it's all delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Collider when you subscribe. That's HelloFresh.com and enter code Collider. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt... felt And I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. Our first story this week is from Elizabeth Yuko. It was recorded in Simpler Times on November 4th, 2016 at the Crane Theater in New York as part of the Gotham Storytelling Festival. About a year and a half ago, I was riding the train home uh, on my daily commute, which was pretty long. It was from Queens to the Bronx, uh, which in that time I came in contact, physical contact, with more people than I ever thought I would in my entire life, uh, basically in my first commute. And uh, I was commuting to my job as a bioethicist. And what that is, if you're not super familiar with uh, our work, uh, we look at difficult ethical issues dealing with the medicine and the human body. Um, basically, anything that people don't want to talk about is my job to talk about, like stem cell research, end of life issues, should you donate your kidney to your brother in law, um, abortion, any sort of reproductive things. That's what I do. So um, I have a very popular seat next to me at dinner parties because people want to ask me all of their personal um, ethical questions. Uh, so I, I specialize in reproductive ethics and sexual health ethics. So I spend a lot of time talking about particularly female genitalia. And um, that is the stage is totally normal for me and not anything that I, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't sound strange at all. So back to the train. So I'm coming home from work one day with a friend of mine and it was rush hour I'm on the seven train in Queens. And um, we were talking about, I remember exactly, we were talking about how the PIX11 Seinfeld train, the sign, the seven train that was coded to look like Monk Steiner was always going in the opposite direction of rush hour and why that was. And while that happened, I felt something brush up against my upper thigh. And I was like, okay, well, whatever, it's commuting time. Um, and then uh, a few seconds later, I felt like a hand 
firmly and deliberately grab my vagina. And I was like, oh, that's not good. So I turned to him, to the guy. It was shockingly, it was a man. Um, And I said, excuse me. Uh, And not in like a sassy, assertive sort of excuse me sort of way. It was like, you know, timid and apologetic. And he had his, a red t-shirt pulled up over, I can't do that because I will not, I will break the microphone rule, pulled up over his nose like a child who smelled something bad on a school bus and he just said sorry and scurried to the other side of the train. My friend had no idea any of this happened because none of it looked out of place for rush hour in New York. And so we were getting off the next stop anyway. We do have a lovely sushi dinner. I don't mention it. Then I go home and start thinking about it and think, okay, well, if he does this to someone else, this is basically all your fault. Um, and I felt guilty. I felt ashamed. Um, as a very outspoken feminist, I felt like I let my whole team down. Um, I mean, how hard is it to find an MTA employee? Well, in my station, kind of hard. But I mean, it's it. <laughs> I, I should have done something. So uh, I met the same friend for dinner, maybe two days later, and over a plate of beef brisket, lemon potatoes, and pickles, uh, I told her what had happened while she was standing next to me. And I don't really remember what her reaction was because I was so concerned about the people around us because they were small children dining. I didn't want to ruin their dining experience by them overhearing uh, what had happened and um, my description of my my own anatomy and so I you know I, I kind of cut that short and so she offered to go with the police with me because I, I decided to go to the police on that the following day and Saturday no I was like you know what this is pretty easy I have been watching a little Brooklyn Nine-Nine so I'm pretty sure I'm gonna have a great time and meet a very handsome police officer um, who's also funny uh, and like you know I got this it's just a form I'll fill out the form next day I go uh, to the my local precinct uh, waltz in there go to the desk and uh explain to the person there and what looked like the rest of the precinct what had happened to me. And they said, okay, just take a seat in the waiting room. So I sat there for a while, trying not to make eye contact because the other clientele, I don't think we're also super into hearing about what happened. And eventually they lead me to a room. And in this room, I'm, they sit me in a metal chair while the song, Don't Stand So Close To Me, played in the background. <laughs> My first thought was, do they have a mixtape for sex crimes that they like pop in when you, when you sit there? I'm like, no, don't be ridiculous. No one does mixtapes anymore. They're CDs or playlists. Like, whatever. This is not, you know, this is, this is Queens. This is not, you know, somewhere else. So I sit down and the police officer comes in and um, he clearly did not want to be there. Uh, he uh, sat down. His first question to me was, okay, what were you wearing? So I was like, okay, um, I was wearing a knee-length dress with a yellow cardigan. Uh, I was dressed kind of like an old-timey secretary, kind of like now. And uh, also, it doesn't matter if I was naked. No one should be able to touch me. And he was like, right, but about that, um, you know, when you wear dresses, you just make your crotch a little bit more available to gropers. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, thank you. That's a really good tip. Um, cool. Uh, so then we got into specifics and he kept using words like between your legs or crotch. And just cause I knew it annoyed him, I countered with vagina and labia. And, um, 
he got progressively more flustered and uh, visibly upset by my use of the words and he even called me out on it. Is, is, is there, you know, is there a reason you're saying this? I said, well, to be honest with you, like it's literally what I work with for a living. Uh, so yeah, like I'm, you know, we'll just, he's like, oh, okay, whatever. Good for you. Um, then I learned a new term called digital rape. And we went through this very explicitly. Apparently, if uh, someone gets their hands up inside you, it's digital rape. If they don't, it is just forcible touching. And they are two different crimes. So we had a very extensive discussion about finger angling and everything you would never want to have on a Saturday afternoon with a guy, your local police officer, your local precinct. To which, after we discuss, discuss that, he just says, well, I hope at least your boyfriend gets to touch you like that. Yeah, so <laughs> this is going really well. I guess I, I felt like I was there to do my civic duty. Um, I listened to their weird soundtrack. I'm playing along. I'm answering all their dumb questions. That I was like, no, this is, this is not right. Oh, I should mention, from the very beginning, I was taking notes in the back of an envelope because I could tell something was really weird from the minute I got there. And I'm a writer, so I thought, like, okay, worst case scenario, I'll get a funny story out of it. Um, <laughs> wish granted. Uh, so then... Uh, so we talked about, he's really concerned about the sexual gratification of my hypothetical non-existent boyfriend. Um, once we established that, there was uh, an administrative assistant who was also in the office. And she said, well, honey, um, I could also tell you why you were targeted. It's because you're a larger woman. And then she left, and the police officer picked up where she left off and said, well, actually, yeah, it's true. Uh, Gropers tend to gravitate towards larger women. So I was wondering, is that like a logistical thing just because there's more of us to grab? Like there's more surface area? Or do you just assume that we have such low self-esteem that like we're delighted to be groped on the subway because that's like as much as we're going to get for the year? And so, uh, so yeah, so that is that was not great. He was very concerned about, he's like, so where were you, uh, where, were you stand where were you sitting? I was like, oh, standing, it was rush hour. He's like, oh, okay. Okay, well, next time, try sitting down. It will make it harder for them to grab your crutch. I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much. That is amazing. That is fantastic advice. Uh, great. Uh, then he said, did you happen to get a photo of the guy? I was like, I, uh, I, did, I did not. Uh, should I have? And he was like just would have made our job a lot easier if you'd have gotten a photo of the guy. Uh, and I was like, okay, what well, kind of happened really fast? Um, and he's like, your phone does have a camera, doesn't it? I was like, yes, it is not 1998. My phone does have a camera, but it doesn't matter. Like, I, I you know, I, I froze. I didn't, I, I couldn't do anything. So, um, yeah, so that was, so just to recap, um, things I was doing wrong, number one, wearing a dress, number two, possessing female genitalia, number three, being fat, number four, standing up during rush hour, number five, not taking a phone, a picture of this guy with my phone. So as you could see, I was doing a lot of things wrong. Um, and um, was not, not a perfect victim, I guess. Um, so... He ends up, he's like, well, listen, because it happened in a subway, I actually can't handle this for you. We have to give you the transit police. So I was like, you mean like I've been here for two hours talking about my vagina with you for no reason? And he was basically like, yeah. Um, but silver lining, everybody, silver lining. He said that he has never had that much fun filling out a sexual assault report in his career. 
Thank you. <laughs> and he does not laugh that much at work, regardless of the crime. So, <laughs> pretty great. Um, then he said, he was, he was finishing his shift, and he said it was a shame that I had to continue the process with the transit police because he wanted to invite me to a barbecue at his mother's house. Uh, so, um, we're now engaged. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> we're not. Um, honey, stand up in the back. No. Um, no. Um, so, he leaves. The transit cops come, and there are two of them to escort me to Regal Park, the transit uh, police station. And it was one of the first warm days of the year, and they said, listen, our squad car's air conditioning is broken. Uh, we have a van. It's like, oh, all right, okay. So I sat in the back of essentially a paddy wagon where the criminals sat in the back behind the little bars and they're in the front and I'm like yelling at them to the bars talking about like, you know, what happened and what good restaurants to go to on Queens Boulevard. And um, they like Ben's Kosher Deli, should you want to know. Uh, So they dropped me off at the police station, but I didn't see a police station. They then explained to me that the transit police are located underground in a subway station. So that means when you're the victim of a crime on the subway, you must then return to a subway station to report the crime. So they're really into um, triggers, I guess, and um, making sure not to re-traumatize people uh, because this was, it was amazing. I was like, oh, okay, fantastic. So I go down there. Anyway, tell me story to two more police officers. One, I got my first empathetic one of the day. He said that he has a wife and two college-age daughters. Therefore, he understands why this is not okay. Like, cool, okay, that's great. Um, This shouldn't be a prerequisite, but cool. Um, So uh, I finished this up. I was late for my friend's birthday, blah, blah, blah. So the next day, I write up all my notes for my envelope and do nothing with this narrative for about a year and a half. Then I decided uh, last year I wanted to publish it because I was starting to write a little bit more and uh, one of the many nationally televised sexual assaults happened. And I'm like, I should say something. Um, so I published an essay with Refinery29, but before it came out, they said, we're contacting the NYPD for, co- you know, for comment. Uh, just to warn you, they'll probably say something. I'm like, okay, well, I didn't do anything wrong. They thought I did. Like, okay, so it was, it was as someone with anxiety, I did, did not, this wasn't great. Uh, then they said, you know, we're getting our legal team involved. We're going to have like, you on like media watch. People are probably going to want to talk to you. This will be a whole thing. So that kind of got me all worked up and there's no backing out now. It was, it was, it was going in. And so it was published and uh, n- nothing happened at all. The NYPD did not even give like a fake press release or like a, an insincere PR apology, like nothing. They just declined to comment. Um, I got a lot of really fun internet comments uh, regarding my weight and my ability to attract men uh, on the subway. Oh, sorry, backtrack one second. The charmer, my fiance, um, when we were having our little chat there, uh, he asked, um, I know you're not supposed to go out of ordered stories, but I just thought of this. Um, he said, you know, is this the first time it's happened to you? I said, no, it's actually happened a few different times. And so he said, okay, well, you know, what are you doing to attract this sort of behavior? So we went over again the checklist of things I should and shouldn't do. And so he said, well, I guess, I guess a lot of men just find you attractive. And I was like, yes, but they're sex offenders. <laughs> <laughs> and so, hmm. Um, 
So anyway, now we're back in the, in the, in the present. This thing, you know, I published the essay. Uh, there's no comments. I start emailing it to everyone in the, in the NYPD, the commissioner, the mayor. No responses. Um, uh, the only responses I do get are uh, unsolicited advice from everyone from uh, my prom date from the late 90s, who I have not seen since then, to literally anyone else. The top three suggestions were, number one, carry pepper spray. Number two, purchase and carry a gun at all times. And number three, procure a hood and aviator sunglasses and wear them constantly a la the Unabomber. <laughs> And if I did all of these things, in addition to not wearing a dress, not having a vagina, not going on uh, subway during rush hour, sitting down, taking pictures, like I should be pretty, I should be fine. So um, yeah, and then I tried to publish another article, like a kind of a follow-up on things to say and not say to people who've been sexually assaulted. This was this past summer. And all these editors told me, you know what, we're actually, we're, we're finished with sexual assault as a conversation. We've kind of moved on as a society. Then a few weeks later, a little video surfaced featuring our Republican nominee for president uh, discussing one of his uh, extracurricular hobbies of pussy grabbing. And all of a sudden, I was a hot commodity and the spokesperson for vagina grabs. So that was a kind of unexpected uh, <laughs> twist. So, and I kind of went to, you know, all these people who told me it was over, they're like, oh, now we want to talk to you. Great. Uh, and uh, just for good measure, I tweeted the NYPD this afternoon. Uh, with the helpful tips of what to say and not to say to people who've been sexually assaulted. So maybe one day they'll get back to me. That was Elizabeth Yuko. Elizabeth is a bioethicist and writer specializing in the intersection of popular culture and ethics. She is an experienced communications strategist and currently serves on the board of directors of the UN-affiliated NGO, the Global Bioethics Initiative, and as an external expert for the European Research Council. She's been published in the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, and Rolling Stone, among others. And she also hosts a comedy lecture show called Let's Get Ethical at QED in Queens, New York. Our second story today is from Salam Gano. It was recorded in November 2016 at the Oberon Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My father is from Ethiopia. It's a country in East Africa. Uh, the first time I went there, I was seven. And I think I was really too young to notice the differences between like American society and a rural agricultural Ethiopian society because my father is from a very small region in the south called Kafa that has its own language and culture. And uh, I don't really remember all of those differences. All that I really remember was having a lot of fun. Uh, I rode horses because there were no roads for cars. I uh, herded cattle and milked cattle and ran barefoot with my cousins down into the forest and to the closest river to fetch water uh, because there was no running water in Kaffa, so we would fetch it from the river and bring it back to the house. And in fact, there is no running water in Kaffa. Um, and I think because the first time I went, I was so young and just took everything for granted that I really connected with my family there, uh, with the village that my father is from, and with our region, Kaffa. 
And so when I was a sophomore at MIT last year, in fact, um, I decided to embark on a water project to see what could be done about some of these differences that I started to notice, um, and particularly that of water. And I embarked on a project uh, in a specific village in Kaffa called Muti. And uh, it's actually the village where my father went to middle school <laughs> when he was growing up. And though I say village, uh, Muti actually has a population of 15,000 people spread over a large area. Um, again, very agricultural and rural. And if these people aren't getting their water from a spring or a river, um, they're getting it from this structure called a spring protection, which is a type of structure that you build uh, where you cover like surface water, such as a river or literally like a mountain spring. Um, and if you do it in a way such that no organic material or contaminants get inside, then the soil and the sediment of the earth is actually a very good filter. And you can get very clean, drinkable water from that, even by the standards of uh, Americans and of the United States. Um, but the problem with this was that previously there were seven spring protections built in Muti. And now only one of them still works. So they lasted anywhere between three years to three months. So they weren't very sustainable, or at least not as sustainable as it could be. And so my goal was really to find a solution that would last longer and um, be more worth the investment and the effort and hopefully expand that to the rest of the region uh, in Kaffa. And so I applied to a lot of grants at MIT and spoke to a lot of people and actually got connected with a professor in um, civil engineering who advises me on this project. And in January 2016, I went uh, to Ethiopia um, to see if it was even feasible, scope out the area. Again, it's so rural and isn't connected to very many resources, let alone uh, MIT. So I went there to make those connections and do some research. Um, but what I really remember from that trip was not all the research or the technical decisions we made. Um, and we made a lot of them. Uh, we decided, in fact, actually to build a hand dug well, which is a structure that we hoped would be more robust and would last longer than the spring protections without requiring too many more resources or a much higher cost. But what I really took from that trip was the people that I met. And they were so unlike other people I'd met. I would went to Ethiopia by myself and uh, met all these kind of young urban professionals in the capital, capital city, Addis Ababa. And one of them was actually this guy named Naul. Uh, he worked with an NGO in Ethiopia called Drop of Water that I was really excited about because Drop of Water was started by Ethiopian students at Makela University. And it was also largely funded from within the nation. And they served a lot of regions in the north and were building wells and doing water projects there. And so it was very much for Ethiopians and by Ethiopians. And Leul also had a startup in Addis Ababa, which is something that just would have been a non sequitur like seven years ago. And so it was really invigorating to speak with him and hear what it was like to work with an NGO in modern Ethiopia and also be starting a startup really on the crest of all the economic development that had happened. And he had a lot to say about uh, what was better now and what was more capable now than ever had been before, um, or even some things that maybe were better in the past. And perhaps most importantly, what it meant to be Ethiopian in this modern age uh, when everything was changing so quickly. And perhaps most particularly, how to maintain that Ethiopian culture in the face of westernization or modernization, or were those two really just the same thing? 
And so I left that trip really invigorated by Leul and others I'd met who had all this energy and all this purpose and were doing all these things in Ethiopia, which was really different from the Ethiopian Americans I grew up around because they were older and understandably more conservative or pessimistic about economic or political changes in the nation. And I think for very good reasons. Um, but that enthusiasm and that optimism really carried me forward through finishing my sophomore year at MIT when I came back and applying for more grants and really nailing down this plan for this well and raising enough to go back to Ethiopia, actually, and really this time go there to plan the details of the well and get it built in the fall. And so um, I landed in the capital city, Addis Ababa, uh, for my second trip about three months ago in August. And uh, I got off the airplane and uh, I was in the taxi back to my aunt's house with my cousin Gedeon who came to pick me up. And he turns to me and he says, the internet has been down for the last two days and we don't know when it's going to go back up. And he had meant that the internet had been shut down in the entire nation. In the entire nation of Ethiopia, you could not use email or social media or internet calling services, I could not communicate with anyone back um, in the United States, which of course had huge implications for our project because there were people we needed to be communicating with, but also just for safety. How would we communicate with people back there? International calling was expensive and sometimes difficult. Um, and it was also a symptom that something had seriously gone wrong or been happening that I hadn't heard about until I landed there. That was three months ago. Ethiopia is currently under a state of emergency. So it's a long and complicated situation, uh, but the short version is basically that the government is led by mostly Tigray people, which is a cultural group in Ethiopia. And there's two other large cultural groups, Amhara and Oromo, backed by several other Ethiopians, whether just as individuals or other groups, uh, who believe that the government is really marginalizing and oppressing people with some of the infrastructure they've built um, in more rural regions. And so they started protesting, uh, which turned into larger conflicts and which led to violence and many deaths. Um, in fact, I also lead the Ethiopian Eritrean Students Association at MIT. And there was an exec board meeting we had just to plan an event uh, like we often do for uh, people around MIT. Um, and we weren't really even talking about this subject, but many of them are international students who only came to the United States to go to college. And the end of that meeting really just devolved into people worrying about their families, uh, their parents, arguing whether other people getting involved, the diaspora Ethiopians, uh, were doing the right thing. And after this kind of back and forth, just silence. So with our project, uh, we were actually able to do most of the things that we needed to do. I talked to a contractor while I was in Ethiopia. Um, fortunately, Kafa is not too, like, politically important or anything. We acquired the materials that we needed, chose the type of pump uh, for the well, set up everything. But there's still things that needed to happen after I came back to MIT, contracts that needed to be sent and final agreements that became so much harder because of these 
communication issues, and many of which actually haven't happened yet. And so there's this strange feeling of accomplishing something, but not really doing that final step. And it just made everything so uncertain. And in fact, the only thing that I'm really certain of at this point is that you have to keep going. I will keep going with this project, and all those Ethiopian MIT students will keep going, as will all those young professionals in Addis Ababa. I think we're all people who look forward to giving back to our communities in ways such as these, starting projects or completing projects, starting businesses and startups and nonprofits, and really showing the world that Ethiopia and many other African countries are capable of so much more than others might think. But in these discouraging situations, sometimes that's all there is. Just supporting each other in this unglamorous, constant, relentless push forward. Thank you. That was Salam Gano. Salam is an MIT undergraduate studying mechanical engineering with robotics. She also blogs professionally for MIT admissions and around the internet. When not in class, she is an undergraduate researcher at the MIT Media Lab and the principal researcher for the Multi Water Project. If you enjoyed today's story or are a fan of the podcast, please consider writing us a review on iTunes. It's a great way to help new listeners find the podcast, and we love sharing these stories. We're also grateful for the support of the Simons Foundation, who helped make this all possible. Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Nissa Greenberg, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Crane Theater and Oberon for hosting the shows, and to 2017. Hopefully. We'll see. Thanks for listening. 